Well, we've fast-forwarded in John's Gospel uh, six months from last week's passage. Last week we saw Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and we saw that the Jewish leaders began making definite plans to kill him because of that. We might find that a bit hard to comprehend. Having been confronted with indisputable evidence, a man alive after being dead after four days, wouldn't anyone believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Some did, but others planned to kill him. But that's, that's the nature of unbelief. It's not based on lack of evidence. It's from a heart that has already set itself against God. When I was in student ministry at uni, uh, I occasionally had conversations with atheists and I found that the quickest way to end that conversation was to tell them the reason that people don't believe in God isn't because there's no proof that God exists, but because of sin. Romans 1 says, Human beings suppress the truth in unrighteousness despite the fact that creation is a constant reminder of God's eternal power and divine nature. So, as we saw a couple of Fridays ago, when Jesus told the parable in Luke's Gospel of Lazarus and the rich man, it's the only parable in which he gives a name to one of the characters, he concluded with this teaching point. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I was just wondering why... I've lost my glasses. Anyway, oh, there they are. Sorry. Wondering why everything was looking blurry. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that point was proven true. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but these Jewish leaders had already made up their minds about Jesus. So not even a miracle on that scale would change their hearts. So Jesus has come to Jerusalem one last time for the Passover. And he's already spent six days there teaching the crowds as well as spending one last time preparing his 12 disciples for what's about to happen. Uh, So when Jesus has spoken these words, refer to the previous few chapters where we see Jesus uh, in that room with his disciples over the Last Supper uh, teaching them one last time. Through John's Gospel as well as all the other Gospels and in fact all of the Bible, we're given glimpses behind the scenes, so to speak, and so we see that while human beings are making their plans and their schemes for good, for evil, mostly evil, the sovereign hand of the Father is behind everything, making sure that everything, good and evil, is working together to fulfil his promises. We, we know that, don't we, but we need to be reminded of it because we so easily forget. The classic line in the Old Testament is when Joseph 
risen to the position of Prime Minister of Egypt, finally makes himself known to his brothers who had sold him as a slave. And he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people may be saved. So God doesn't take bad situations and manage to intervene and try and get some good out of it, despite all the bad that's happened. That would make the good just like a consolation prize for all that you've suffered. No, he's at work in all things and because he's God, he's able to do so without himself being the author of sin and without taking away the moral responsibility of human beings who commit the evil. And we see that clearly in today's passage. On face value, it appears as if different people are taking control of the situation, whether it's Judas or Peter or the soldiers. But what we'll see is that there's actually one person who's in control, and that's Jesus. But first, we need to go back a few hours from this time to get some background and we'll see a deliberate parallel that John is highlighting in the way that he describes this event. Jesus is in the room where he's eating Passover with his friends, with the twelve, and John records a lot of the conversation and the teaching that took place over that meal, including when Jesus foretold his betrayal. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then skipping down to verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should go and give some to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And it was night, not so much a reference to the time of day, but to the spiritual state of things. It was where Satan began to work in earnest. He departed from Jesus during his temptation until a more opportune time and this is that time. Then following this is a well-known section where Jesus gives us the famous new commandment. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, what's the connection there between verses 31 and 33 and this command to love one another? What's this? Jesus says, I'll be leaving you soon in a physical sense. He'll be going to the cross, to the empty tomb. Then after 40 days, after the resurrection, he'll be lifted up in glory to rule over all things from the right hand of the Father. Then, as he promised, he'll come back to take his disciples, including us and all who have believed the Gospel, to be with him forever, to participate in his glory in that new creation, in the presence of the Father. But in the in-between time, between his ascension and his return, this new commandment is the mandate for all of his disciples. As we look back at what he has done for us at the cross and as we look forward to his return, the love of Jesus, which is an expression of that immeasurably love of the, deep love of the Father, is to find expression in how we love one another. Notice it's one another. He's not talking here about how we love our neighbours out in the world. He's saying specifically, this is how you as my disciples should be loving one another. Then he predicts Peter's denial. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So see how Jesus' words here are sandwiched between the words of these two disciples or the accounts of these two disciples, Judas and his betrayal and Peter's bravado and then his denial. Judas the traitor, he left the meal to go and meet a band of soldiers to take them to the garden where they would arrest Jesus. Peter, he considered himself much better than a traitor. In fact, the opposite. He gave the pledge, I will lay down my life for you. A pledge of the kind of love that Jesus has just commanded them. But look at Jesus' devastating response. And his prediction, of course, came true. Peter did deny knowing Jesus and all of his bravado, all of his self-confidence was destroyed in a moment. So on either side of Jesus' command to love, we have these two stark examples of how we fail miserably to love. Jesus was the Lord their God whom they were supposed to love with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. He was also their brother and their neighbour whom they were supposed to love as themselves. And in their betrayal and their denial, they failed to keep both of these of the great commandments. 
And these men's failures bring into even sharper relief then the love of Jesus. He dies for his friends, but he also dies for friends who have betrayed and denied him, friends who have acted as his enemies. So Judas and Peter each thought they had worked out exactly how things should happen. Jesus affirms actually he's in control of what's about to happen. It's in fulfilment of the scriptures that he acts. He's about to perform the ultimate act of love that will serve as the template then for how they are to relate to one another from this point onwards. To see how that's the same structure then of our passage. Judas's betrayal as he leads a band of soldiers to arrest Jesus. Then on the other side, Peter's bravado who tries to defend Jesus with a little sword against the whole army and in the middle, Jesus himself is taking charge and he ensures that his disciples go free. Who's in charge? Is it Judas? Judas has been waiting for days for this opportunity to hand Jesus to the authorities. Is it Peter? Peter who's convinced that no one is going to take his beloved rabbi and crucify him. Is it the officers who have come from the chief priests and the Pharisees who had been planning for months to have Jesus killed? No, Jesus, the Son of Man, about to be glorified by going to the cross of his own accord. He is the one who is in charge. See verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, you might have noticed something by his absence. All the Gospels have Judas coming to greet Jesus with a kiss. That was to be the sign for the soldiers to know which one they were to arrest. Now, presumably, it's already happened, but John has made no mention of it. He's emphasising Jesus' actions, not Judas. Judas here seems to be just standing there watching it all happen. Judas's kiss ultimately made no difference to the chain of events because even though he did kiss Jesus, Jesus' plan was always to give himself up. He knew all that was going to happen to him. He'd come in fulfilment of the scriptures. He'd been hearing the voice of his father all the way through his ministry, directing everything he said and did. This was the purpose for which he came into the world. Nothing was going to stop him and no one was going to assist him in fulfilling it. He's the son of man. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then, when Jesus identifies himself, the soldiers draw back and fall to the ground so that he has to ask them again who they are seeking. They're supposed to run forward and seize him, but they do the opposite. It's almost as if they're not in control of their own actions. They're unable to seize Jesus until he gives permission. Now Jesus' words 
I am he, uh, is better translated simply as I am. Three times in four verses we hear Jesus say, I am. John's Gospel is full of Jesus making I am statements. Seven times he describes himself saying I am using various pictures, some of which we've seen in our series. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Then in chapter 8, while he's talking to Jewish leaders in the temple, he uses the phrase, I am, without any qualification. I told you that unless... That you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that third one in particular prompted the Jews to pick up stones to throw at him because it's a clear claim to be Yahweh himself, the great I Am who existed before Abraham, who chose and called Abraham, who directed the history of Abraham's offspring ever since. So while it could be read as Jesus simply identifying himself as Jesus of Nazareth, and he, that it is doing that, the fact that John makes sure that we hear the words three times from Jesus means there's something much bigger going on here. They think they're coming to arrest some troublemaker from the back blocks of Galilee. In reality, they've come face to face with their creator, the Lord, the I Am, veiled in human flesh. And for a second... Jesus lets his glory be seen as he gives his divine name, I am. It's a common theme in the Bible that when people glimpse God's glory, they fall down, unable to move. And that's what's going on here. Jesus, the Son of God, is in charge of what's happening, not the soldiers. He's working on the Father's timeline not theirs. But there's something else going on in this. There's another scripture that needs to be fulfilled. There's a repeated prayer that comes up in the Psalms and uh, one of them we heard read uh, last week in Psalm 70. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonour who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. It seems as if for a moment that prayer is being answered. They turn back, they fall back. If there's anyone for whom this prayer would be answered, it's Jesus. But that's not his goal. He hasn't come to be delivered from his enemies, but to give himself into their hands. 
He isn't experiencing the answer of that prayer for himself, but he is answering that prayer for his disciples. See verses 8 and 9. Told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfil the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus is ensuring that it's he alone who is arrested and taken to the cross and that his disciples are kept safe. For three reasons. Firstly, these are the men that he has chosen and appointed to be his apostles. They were given to him by the Father. They will be sent out after the resurrection, filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Their time has not yet come. He has a task for them to fulfil before the time will come for them to lay down their lives in service to him and the gospel. So, he makes sure that they are spared for their mission. But secondly, it's not just about being pragmatic. Jesus doesn't just see these men as merely workers for his mission. Remember that commandments we saw in verse 13? Well, Jesus reiterates it again in, uh, sorry, chapter 13. He reiterates it in chapter 15, but with a different emphasis. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So, love one another as I have loved you. Then he describes what that love looks like, laying down my life for my friends. What's the sign that I am Jesus' friend? Well, if I do what he commands, which is to love one another as he has loved me. Then he goes and he demonstrates that love in a real and practical way. If you seek me... Let these men go. Jesus genuinely loved these men with whom he'd spent the last three and a half years of his life. They weren't just workers in the mission. They were his friends. Love was the motivation for what he did. Love for his father meant he desired to do his will and love for those whom he came into the world to save. If these 11 men were the only ones in the world that he'd come to save, he would still have laid down his life for them because they weren't his servants. They were his friends. Of course, he's laid down his life not just for them but for us, which means he doesn't call us servants. He calls us his friends. Jesus is my friend can sound a bit corny and cliched but it's true. Proverbs 18.24 says a man of many companions may come to ruin but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
That friend is Jesus, who has loved us so much that he has laid down his life for us, even when we were his enemies. His action of atoning love at the cross has reconciled us so that we are no longer his enemies. We are now his friends. I think that we normally, and I'm speaking to myself as much as anyone here, we set a very low bar for what it means to love one another as a community of God's people. When we give resources or money, we give a fraction out of our abundance. When we see others in need, we keep our distance or we put up a guard to present ourselves from becoming too burdened with other people's problems. When people need our time, we only give what's convenient for us to make sure we still have time for ourselves. When we prioritise our commitments, we put gathering with God's people so we can stir one another up to love and good works. We put that lower down the list than other commitments and groups and priorities. It's hard to love one another in the body of Christ if we're not making the effort to connect and spend time with each other. So we set the bar quite low and we say we're loving Jesus takes the bar of love, the love for one another, and he raises it up to the highest level. Love one another as I have loved you, which means laying down our lives for one another if the need is there. So it may be that you and I need to re-examine our priorities. We need to examine our hearts and ask, am I willing to obey Jesus' command to love as he has loved us? He's set us free in the Gospel. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. So loving is no longer the law. It's no longer burdensome and wearying. Loving one another is something we can do with joy because we're actually participating in the love that Christ has for us, the love of the Father and the Son. Thirdly, why did Jesus stop his disciples from being arrested? Well, as he said earlier to Peter, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus must go to the cross alone to accomplish the work that's been entrusted to him alone by the Father to bear the sins of the world. No one else can be part of that work. No one else is qualified to do it. It must be the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Peter and John and the other disciples, they must simply be passive onlookers. They can't be participants. They need to be saved by Jesus' death just as much as the rest of the world. And Peter's actions prove this. Even though he's spent three years being taught by Jesus and he's confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he still doesn't get what that means. He still thinks Jesus should rise up with an army and take control of the kingdom for Israel. The scene is almost comical. 
there's a band or a cohort of Roman soldiers. That term, cohort, normally refers to 600 men. So possibly there was a, they were expecting a big insurrection and so they sent out a cohort of soldiers to crush it. Peter thinks he can defend Jesus with his one small knife and maybe trigger a revolution. But a revolution, political power, isn't the cup that the Father has given Jesus. It's a cup of suffering. It's a cup of a shameful death of the cross. It's a cup of love that's even greater than the love of laying down his life for his friends. He lays down his life for those who are his enemies. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we'll see next week how all of Peter's bravado came to nothing. All of his promises to be this faithful friend, they were all empty when he denies knowing Jesus, proving himself really to be no better than the traitor, Judas. Peter needs, as we do, we need Jesus to go alone to that cross and to drink the cup the Father has given him. We'll never be able to obey Jesus' command to love one another until we meet together at this place where God has first loved us, at the foot of his cross, where his blood is shed for us, where our sin is borne by him, where all of our hostility for God and for one another is destroyed, all the barriers are torn down. We need to come to the cross, we need to repent of all of our self-confidence and pride that leads us to take up a sword and to fight instead of laying down our lives in love. We need to repent of our self-interest and our ambition that leads us to sacrifice what is right and true in order to receive the approval of the world, as Judas did. We need to see ourselves in Peter with his foolish bravado and in Judas with his self-serving treachery. Both of them wanting to seize control, both wanting to shape the world by their own sinful ambitions and desires. So we can't stand above these two men and uh, judge them as if we were any better or as if we would do any different if we were in their shoes. We are Peter. We are Judas. But the one who is between us is Jesus who takes that cup of suffering, goes to the cross to die on our behalf so that the self-oriented us may be put to death with him and the new person, the new creation, liberated to love with the love that he has loved us may rise to new life in him. Repentance means that we want the Peter in us, the Judas in us to die. Faith is saying we want the self-sacrificial love of the crucified and risen Jesus to take over, to take control. See his love for you. He 
lays down his life to make you his enemy into his friend, to put to death the Judas, to put to death the Peter and to make you into a new creation in him. Let's pray.